As I mentioned before, we've been moving through the Exodus. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 15. Our New Testament complementary passage is Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. So if you would, place your bulletin or your bulletin insert in your Bibles as a bookmark in Exodus 15. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and in honor of God's word, please stand. First Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 15, beginning in verse 22, continuing in the reading of God's word. And Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Thus far, in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, we come to the preaching and the hearing of your word, and we pray that you would open our eyes, convict of sin, assure of salvation. And grant that we may go forth from this place rejoicing in our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated.
So, children. Let's imagine it's Christmas morning. What happens on Christmas morning? What do you do on Christmas morning? You open... You open presents. Now, I'm not going to ask how many of you this applies to, but I'll be honest and say it certainly applied to me. When it came time to open presents, I generally had an idea of the one present that I was looking for. And I would rip open a package and I would toss it off to the side and I'd rip open another package and I'd toss it off to the side and I'd rip open another package and finally the last package would be opened and it wouldn't be that thing. And I would look up at my mom and dad who had carefully chosen these presents because they had me in mind And I'm I'm taking your side on this one. Socks are terrible Christmas gifts. When mom and dad give you socks, you have a right to say, what? But, isn't it weird how mom and dad have carefully given thought to what they are going to give you for Christmas and how ungrateful you and I can be. And as a parent, I know that you can testify of this. I've seen my children go into this feeding frenzy like sharks on wrapping paper. Wrapping paper flying all over the place until finally I get to that whiny question, is that all? Now let's take that, that reality that we understand, that reality that all of us, to one degree or another, have lived. And let's put it in our text. The children of Israel have just seen Pharaoh's army annihilated. Back against the sea, Pharaoh's army coming in, No hope whatsoever. And God parts the Red Sea so that they walk through on dry land. They've responded to that glorious redemption with the song of Moses. This song of God's powerful hand in throwing down their enemies and rescuing them. And what's the very next thing we see them doing? They grumbled. Now, you and I can look at these Israelites and we can roll our eyes and go, really? God just brought you through the Red Sea. (laughs) This is not a minor deal. God just delivered you. And now you don't like the taste of the water. And so you grumble. And yet, if you've ever opened presents on a Christmas morning, 
you know that the same heart that is there in the Israelites is there in you. And it's there in me. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, this becomes the real theme. This word grumble that shows up in verse 24. It's the first time in your Bible, first time in your entire Bible, that this word has shown up. It's not the last. The children of Israel are going to grumble a lot more. And just like a child grumbles, it's a grumbling against authority. It's not just, eh, I don't like this. It's, eh, I don't like what you gave me. Eh, I don't like where you're leading me. Eh, I don't like your plan. I don't like the presence that you gave me. Grumbling becomes a theme that's going to carry us through the experience of the Israelites for the rest of the Exodus. We're going to look in this passage, we're going to look at three things. The first is the grumbling there at the waters of Marah. The second is the testing. God says, I'm giving you this as a test. And then third and finally, the refreshment. You remember how the passage closes? They go from this place of Mara, this place of grumbling, this place of testing, and then that last verse, they come to a place where there are 70 date palms and springs and there they can truly be refreshed. So grumbling, testing, and refreshment. Now, when I was a child, uh, most of you know, I, I grew up, my father was a, was a medical missionary in Palestine. And so I grew up in Palestine as, as a child. And one time, and this is before the days of the internet, so uh, presumably it's not my father's fault that he did this, but what he did was he came up with a bright idea that our family would take a trip in our station wagon into the desert to Mount Sinai. And on the, on the slope of Mount Sinai is St. Catherine's Monastery. Uh, it's an ancient monastery. A uh, number of ancient copies of the scriptures are found there. And so dad had it in his mind that we're going to drive all day long through the hot, horrible heat of the desert, and we're going to pull up, and then he's going to knock on the door of St. Catherine's Monastery, and they're going to let us in, and we'll spend the night, and we'll get to talk to the monks and, and all that sort of stuff. But what dad didn't investigate ahead of time is whatever sect of monks this was had taken a complete vow of abstinence, such that women were not even allowed inside the monastery. So here we are, 8 o'clock at night, in the middle of the Sinai Desert, knocking on the door, and this little door opens up, and the, my dad says, can we sleep here tonight? And the guy goes, absolutely not, and closes the door. We can't drive home. We're in the middle of the Sinai Desert, and it's dark. So we spent that night. So I don't remember much about the trip because I think I was five or six years old. I remember that night. That night, 
We slept in the car. It got so cold that the, I think, 25-gallon, whatever a big jerry can of water is that we had brought along to drink, our our 25-gallon jerry can of water turned into a solid block of ice. It was cold. You don't think of the desert as being cold. Trust me, at night, it gets cold. The children of Israel are living in that. They're going through that. They're going through that very territory. I don't know if the topography was identical 3,000 years ago to what it is today. I just know I was in the Sinai Desert as a child, and it was cold. And we wanted water. And we had no water because it was a block of ice. That's the situation that the children of Israel are in. They come to this place, Mara, and they're thirsty. They've got cattle, they've got herds, they've got children, they've got families. They need something to drink, and they come to this place, and the water's bad. And so, they grumble. Now, why is it that you and I are able to stand in judgment on the children of Israel in this passage, and yet unable to see it in our own lives. Unable to immediately draw the connection between their grumbling and our grumbling and the reason that it's an offense to God. I think the answer is this. In the particular moment, it makes perfect sense. Because when the child is looking for the Red Ryder BB gun, and gets instead a nice pair of socks. The child is thinking in that moment, Christmas morning, presents being opened, this is the moment. The child is not thinking, mom and dad sacrificed so much to care for me. I see my dad working his fingers to the bone. I see mom scrimping financially. I see them making priorities so that we can go on vacations. I see them denying themselves. And so in the midst of all of this context of how much my parents love me and how much my parents do for me, it would be ridiculous for me to grumble at a pair of socks. Right? So how many of you grumbled when you were a kid? (laughs) Because we don't live. We don't think, we don't, we don't naturally go in that big picture. And that's why the Exodus and the Exodus narrative is something that you and I can very quickly look at and go, what, are you stupid? God just parted the Red Sea, God just destroyed the Egyptians, and just a verse or two ago, you were singing about how glorious He is. And now you're grumbling. Beloved, my point is, should be obvious by now, <laughs> that's you and that's me. Remember in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul said, I'm living my life in the context of the big picture. I'm living my life walking by faith and not by sight. And yet, in the moment, in the moment when we are isolated to this thing that's in front of me, 
this experience that I'm having right now, in this moment, you and I do the same thing. We complain and we grumble. You see the grumbling that is set before us there. And of course God answers miraculously. You'd you'd be amazed at how many articles and commentaries are written on the nature of the tree that was thrown into the water. I find it uh, silly. (laughs) Uh, I I don't care. Uh, God pointed to a stick and said, throw it there and they can drink. And Moses threw the stick and they drank. That's the point. That God provides miraculously even in the face of their grumbling. But then he goes on. He goes on to give them a test. He says, okay, now you've had this, you've had this period and I've not punished you the way that I should. I mean, frankly, how many parents on Christmas morning when the, you're, you're bleary-eyed, the kids woke up at 4 o'clock, uh, you haven't had your second cup of coffee yet, and they're already whining that they didn't get the Red Ryder BB gun. How many parents just think, ah, Merry Christmas. And God would be completely justified. He would be completely justified to cast them off. This miraculous thing that He has done for them is out of their mind. And already they're grumbling. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Not only he provides for them, but then he gives them a test. Now it's interesting what this test is. Again, commentators all over the place on this. The Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will listen diligently to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Here's the test. Here it is in in just a nutshell. Are you going to live by God's word? That's it. Write that down. (laughs) Are you going to live by God's word? That's the test. If you live by God's word, then you're not going to be cast off and destroyed the way that the Egyptians were. That's the test. Now, that sounds super basic and super easy, doesn't it? Are you going to live by God's word? What does your social media feed look like? Can you honestly say that if I scroll through your Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever the thing is, that I'm going to say, ah, this is a person who is careful that every word that comes out of their mouth is like apples of gold in settings of silver. That this is one who truly understands whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, 
If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Is that your persona? Is that your public reality? Now maybe either A, you're too old to know what social media is or to use it. Uh, Maybe you don't fit into that specific category. But can you honestly say that in your home, your conversation is drenched, is permeated by whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are of good report. This is what, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, this is what my dad speaks. This is what my mom speaks. This is their marriage. This is their children. Specifically, in what way does God's Word restrain you? That's where the rubber hits the road. That's where it hits the road. In what way does God's Word make you shut up when you've got that pithy retort? (laughs) When you've got that zinger? In what way does your acknowledgement of God's Word cause you to restrain and curb your tongue? And I'm sorry, that's applicable from the first time a child can walk and talk and stare straight at mommy and goes, no! All the way up to the person at the end of their life, we are called to live according to His statutes and His commands. And beloved, His statutes and commands are not unknown. God, God is not obtuse. He gives us clarity. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How does that restrain you? How does that that cause you to check yourself and say, I need to obey Christ here? I've already spoken about the words, the, the, the language that we use, the way in which we speak. I think the perfect exemplification of this is the perfect man. Matthew chapter 4, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you see how Jesus Christ is operating in perfect harmony with the test? 
that is set forth here in Exodus chapter 15. And beloved, that test is something that the children of Israel are going to be faced with again and again throughout their journey. And as you know, the Exodus is simply your story and my story. It's a story of being delivered from a land of bondage, of slavery to sin, being brought out by God's mighty outstretched hand, by being a Passover people, a people whose safety and security is found in that sacrifice that the perfect Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world has made. A people marked as God. That test that he puts before the people, the test that he puts before you, the test that is exemplified by Jesus Christ in his temptation is will you live by the word of God? Now, Right now you may say, yeah, buddy, I'm in. I'm in. Me and Jesus living by the word. That's not the time when it's tested. The time when it's tested is when you no longer feel like you're in love with this person. And so you go, I shouldn't stay if I'm not in love, right? We covered chapter 22 of the confession in Sunday school this morning of lawful oaths and vows. And I just boiled it down to what the confession says and just basic scriptural truth is do what you say you're going to do. And do it regardless of whether you feel like doing it or not. That's chapter 22 of the confession boiled down. (laughs) Do what you say you're going to do, and regardless of how you feel about it. Now that's hard, isn't it? That is hard. And I'll tell you specifically, in marriage, that is hard. I think that's why Christian divorce rates are so similar to non-Christian divorce rates. Because we're not a people that like it when it gets hard. We're not a people that like to be restrained. We're not a, we are all in on Jesus forgiving. We are not much in on the cost of discipleship. And this is it. You want to know what the cost of discipleship is? This is it. Are you going to be constrained? fenced in, bounded by what God's Word says? Or are you going to do what you think? Do what you feel. Be authentic. Be true to your real self. Your real self is garbage. My real self is garbage. My real self is narcissistic. It's petty. It's manipulative, it's greedy, it's slothful. At my core, I'm a nasty, nasty individual. And so are you. And that's what the gospel is about. Taking a nasty individual and returning us to that beauty that we're called to be, reflections of God's grace, reflections of God's loveliness. God sets forth 
this test. The people have grumbled the first first sign of inconvenience. The people grumble. God provides for them, and he sets forth this test and says, will you keep my word? Will you follow my word? If you do, I'm going to take care of it. The obvious implication is, if you don't, (laughs) you're in bad shape. And again, the same is absolutely true of you and me today. When you and I refuse to be bounded by God's word, destruction and chaos comes. You may not feel it at the moment, like a kid opening up a present. I've said before, sometimes people that are locked in, locked in on a disobedient course of action. You can, you can step in and you can tell them, hey, 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 you know, God's word says don't do this, but they're locked in. It's like arguing with a three-year-old who wants a cookie. How many of you are successful as parents with rationally telling your three-year-old why the cookie at this point in time is an unhealthy choice, it will upset their stomach, They'll enjoy the cookie so much better if they've got a nice big salad in their belly first. Kids, you won't. Salad's bad. Arguing with a three-year-old never turns out well. And arguing rationally with someone who just, I got to do this. God forgives, or this is authentic, this is my true self, i got to do this. My success rate is very, very low. Because the reality is that they've already decided that man is not going to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And once they've already made that decision... All they can do is go for that cookie, learn the destruction, blow up their life, destroy others around them. But boy, they got their cookie. The children of Israel are just like you. The children of Israel are just like me. They grumble at the first inconvenience. God sets before them a test that they fail over and over and over again. But notice how this passage ends. Because really the passage ought to end there in verse 26. What's the point of verse 27? In the narrative, look at it. Ask yourself, what's the point of verse 27 being there? Is it just to kind of wrap up the story and prepare us for the next chapter? It, it doesn't, it's not central to the story. The children of Israel grumbled. God provided, then he set forth a test. That's the story. Verse 27 isn't central to the story. And yet it is. Because God brings them to this place of refreshment. This place of healing. Place of strengthening and encouragement. Why? 
Have they, have they succeeded in the test? God sets forth the test. Keep my word. Follow my word and you'll be good. Can we look at verse 27 and say, oh, well, they must have passed. Absolutely not. The rest of the exodus is them fumbling this. God brings them to this place of refreshment. This place of encouragement and healing. Why? I think that's a question you and I really need to wrestle with. Maybe you don't enough. Maybe you don't wrestle with it enough. Why would God choose a stubborn people? They grumble at him right after he's done this amazing thing. And he brings them to a place of springs and date palms. Why? They don't deserve it. Is it just God's the big candy man in the sky? He's Santa Claus? And he just can't help himself. They are so lovable and so cute. They're just so sweet. He just can't help himself but be good to them. Well, didn't quite treat the Egyptians that way. (laughs) I think to understand that, you've got to understand the centrality of the Passover. You've got to understand how the people of Israel are defined as the Passover people. That's what separated them from the Egyptians. They were the ones who put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lentils of their house. They are the people of the Passover. And suddenly now, beloved, I hope the application is obvious. I don't think there are many dots that need to be connected. That lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in the Exodus is the Lamb of God who took away their sin. The Lamb of God who took away your sin. The Lamb of God who despite your unworthiness, despite your grumbling, despite your immaturity, despite you being a three-year-old who wants a cookie, despite you being an ungrateful brat on Christmas morning, ripping through all of the presents and spurning them all, that God is the God who has set His love on you. That God is the one who brings you to this place of refreshment, this place of encouragement. I think that's one of the reasons that God gives us the Lord's Day. He gives us this place of rest. He gives us this place of nourishment. Because we walk into Sunday, we walk into the Lord's Day, having done an awful lot of battle through the week. An awful lot of everything telling us, this is what's real, this is what's important, This is what to be terrified about. This is what to be focused on. And on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, we just step aside. We come to this place of date palms and springs. We're refreshed. 
God does have this under control. I, I'll tell you, I'm, my wife can tell you, I have been obsessively watching every bit of information about Ukraine. I am obsessed about it. Because it's painful. Because it's frightening. This is very potentially World War III. This is nuclear. Blah, 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 blah. There's plenty to be watching here. Can I do that in the context of saying, you know what, God's got this under control. God is doing all His holy will. And I can trust Him. I think that's what the Lord's Day is for. It's to refresh me in that. To remind me, because I'm a forgetful person. To remind me that He's leading. That He does have a plan. That He does have a purpose. And it is going to be good. It is going, He will do all things well. And that challenge that is set before the children of Israel. They blow it, but the challenge remains the same. Do you trust Him? The children of Israel, and we've already seen in Exodus, would testify He is worthy of your trust. He is the rock, the strong salvation, the sure defender. He is worthy of your trust. And if you will walk in his paths, you will know joy. You will know peace. It may be a peace that passes understanding. Not as the world gives you peace do I give you peace. My peace I leave with you. It's a divine peace. It's a peace of knowing that God is guiding, is leading, and is doing all things well. Are you a Passover pilgrim? Are you identifying yourself as one who has been bought by the blood of the Lamb? Are you clinging to Christ for forgiveness of sin and newness of life. These two go together, brothers and sisters. You can't have discipleship distinct from redemption. And you can't have redemption distinct from discipleship. James will put it another way. You say you have faith. I say, show me. Show me your faith by your works. It's the cost of discipleship. The cost of following after Jesus Christ. The children of Israel here are going to learn that it's worth it. Beloved, you and I are told it's worth it. Trust Him. Find your life hidden with Christ in Him. Let it restrain your stupidity. Live by His Word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the test here in Exodus. You and I can joyfully face it because Jesus Christ stood up to Satan and gave the answer. And in Christ, 
you can know righteousness. And in Christ, you can know this joyous pilgrimage. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we're reminded in your word that these things are given to us as examples, help us to see the example, to seize it, to recommit to living by your word guarding ourselves by your word, restraining ourselves by your word, but always joyfully walking in your paths. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.